Welcome to The Media Mix. I'm Claire Atkinson. On this episode, a look at the rise of media mogul Rupert Murdoch. We'll hear from the author of a new biography charting the very early years of the Murdoch newspaper empire and what Rupert Murdoch learned about keeping control from his father, Sir Keith. Rupert Murdoch is now 92 years old and keeps the news cycle busy. The media baron is still very much involved in the Republican primary race, and there's some personal news too. After four marriages and a very recent breakup, he's dating again. This time, his girlfriend is scientist Elena Zakova, who is the ex-wife of a Russian oligarch, according to Drudge Report, which broke the news. There's never a dull day in the life of Rupert Murdoch, as author Walter Marsh finds in his chronicle of the early years of News Corporation. His book is called Young Rupert, The Making of the Murdoch Empire. And it's a fascinating read with details about how Rupert's father forged a career on Britain's Fleet Street and returned to South Australia to build up a newspaper empire. But by the time of his death, there was little left for his son to inherit. We'll also hear from Walter about Rupert's time at Oxford University, where he was nicknamed Comrade. And we'll also hear about newspaper circulation wars through the letters between Murdoch and old schoolmates. Marsh grew up in Adelaide, the epicenter of so much newspaper history. And he tells us how he dug up the origin story of News Corporation. I think Rupert would be impressed. Tell me about the book and how you began to write it. What was the what was the reason that you thought, let, let me write about Rupert Murdoch's early years? Yeah, well, I guess um, the starting point really is is growing up in, in Adelaide in South Australia. Um, this is the city I've lived in my whole life where I'm talking to you from today. Yeah, that's when News Limited was born. That's where Rupert's company, News Limited, was born, right? You're, you're from Adelaide. And we're doing this interview right now and you're in Australia. Yeah, absolutely. And so growing up, um, Adelaide, the only newspaper in town is the Murdoch-owned advertiser. So it's a one-paper town um, with a Murdoch monopoly. And it's been that way since for my whole life, really. Um, and I kind of took that for granted as a normal thing. But then as I got older, I began to realise that that paper that I knew was part of not only part of this big empire that reached all around the world and had an influence that wasn't always positive, but I realised that actually it wasn't just part of that story. It was kind of the foundation of it. So about 10 years ago, I was doing um, history at university and I started looking into it um, and then happily put my honours thesis on the shelf and didn't think about it for a few years while working in and out of the media. Um, And then, you know, buffeted by closing magazines and redundancy powers and all the things that journalists have to navigate these days. And yeah, just sort of around the pandemic, I decided to go back and revisit those sources and, and tell this story, which, you know, there are a lot of Murdoch books, as I'm sure you know, um, and because he, ha- you know, he's got 70 years of working in the media and a lot of those years are very colourful, pretty scandalous at times. Um, but this was a story I thought that often either f- fell through the cracks or became just a little kind of footnote. Um, but the more I kept digging into these archives and, and libraries around Australia, um, the more I, I started to think that actually it was kind of, there's so much that foreshadowed everything that, um, came afterwards that it was kind of like a scale model uh, in this very small town, a small pond uh, of everything that came afterwards. So, and it has all the, from a storytelling perspective as well, like all these all these tensions and these recurring characters in this very um, concentrated, high stakes ten year period, really, um, that made it a really interesting story to put together. Yeah, and and you introduce us to all the characters that f- helped form who Rupert Murdoch is from. 
publishers that he worked for to colleagues to rogues. And um, what, what was surprising to me is that you set the scene um, about Rupert's early years and, you know, some things I didn't know. He, he had a pretty uh, affluent upbringing. He's known to us as being very anti-establishment uh, and pro-mass market. He's in touch with what working class people want to know and read about. But his own upbringing was pretty, uh, he's pretty wealthy. He went to Oxford. He uh, went to a, a Geelong grammar school. Is that how you say it? Um, so tell us about that world. He, you know, took motorbike vacations around Europe when he was off on holidays from being a student. Uh, what, what was that world that Rupert grew up in? What, what was it like? Yeah, so uh, people probably in America and, and Britain might not realise, um, but certainly in Australia it's a bit more known. But Rupert's father, um, the Murdoch story, the story of Murdoch's in the media actually starts, you know, over 100 years ago um, with his father, Keith Murdoch, later Sir Keith Murdoch, who for his time in Australia was one of the country's most influential and often most divisive press barons. So he he started, he was hired as editor at this Melbourne company called The Herald. Uh, and he worked his way up, c- consolidated power over 30 years and grew that company into an empire that spread all around Australia. Um, uh, to the extent that, and he, he was sort of the figurehead of this company, to the extent that, you know, the Murdoch Press, which is a term that is often leveled at um, Rupert's companies and not, not, not often used in a very flattering way, uh, that was originally the term that was used to describe his father's papers. But his father never actually owned this company. He built it up, but he was only a minor um, shareholder. He was a manager, really. So his last few years were spent, and this is the story that I tell in the book, was spent really furiously trying to pull together this kind of side hustle, this side empire, a string of newspapers and radio stations and magazines that were owned privately by the family um, that he could pass on to Rupert. Uh, As he says in his will, he hopes that his son could live a a full, useful and altruistic life um, in the media. Uh, So he's really struggling to do that and stretching himself very thin in those last years and kind of exploiting his position as the head of this other company uh, pulling strings, convincing his board to sell some of their paper interests to the Murdoch family, which for some of Rupert's colleagues, you know, was akin to like theft essentially. Um, so as soon as Rupert's father died, the story that once it kind of gets underway, the story that I tell is Rupert is forced to come to Adelaide, this sort of small pond um, with this paper, sort of the second best paper in town. And he's coming up against, he's in this sort of fight for his life in newspapers up against his father's old colleagues who not, you know, understandably are trying to claw all this stuff back that Keith had just carved out. Um, And so he's in this fight. He's up against his father's old colleagues. You can see how that creates this enormous chip on his shoulder. And I think that um, that battle kind of explains this kind of foundational contradiction in in Murdoch as as a person and as a proprietor where he can be, as you said, he's this sort of outsider and disruptor who's always, you know, seeking out new audiences and challenging these establishments in every new market and, you know, outraging people along the way. But also he's this great opportunist. But he's also an insider. He's the product of this these systems. He's the son of a press baron. He's the beneficiary of, um, you know, he inherited a newspaper company to start with, but also grew up, you know, surrounded by his father's connections and having a father that lived and breathed newspapers. I'm fascinated to learn more about Rupert's father because, 
my all I really knew was that he was a war reporter and he covered Gallipoli and, uh, you know, he won uh, a lot of prestige for that coverage. I had not known all of the backstory that you dug up, Walter, about the fact that he was also press baron and also uh, wanted to collect a lot of newspapers. Can you um, and also he was kind of like a, a founder of the newspaper industry in Australia at the time. I mean, I, I just learned that Australia only as a country existed from 1901. And here you have Sir Keith and then Rupert being two of the founders of the, the nation's communications infrastructure. So tell us a little bit about Keith Murdoch. Rupert used to go to the office, I believe, with his father at age 11, even learning the newspaper business. What, what does he learn? What are the, the tricks uh, or the lessons that he picks up from Sir Keith? Well, so yeah, R- Rupert's father, he was a, he started off as a sort of a penny a line freelancer. His father was a Presbyterian minister. So he didn't come from a newspaper background necessarily, although a lot of Scottish Presbyterians were in the newspaper business in, in Australia. Um, so he, he kind of had to work his way up from from the ground. And as I say in the book, his first attempt to break into Fleet Street was a complete failure. Um, and he had this nervous stammer that when he finally did get a job interview, which he got because he had a letter of introduction from a former prime minister. So he was pretty well connected even then. So those Murdoch connections with prime ministers go way, way back. And it flows right through the book as well. But So he had this letter of introduction, but his, his big break fell to bits because he couldn't really string together a sentence when he, was, when he had the job interview, which puts into context this, the famous sort of foundational myth of a lot of, a, a lot of Australia as well, but also the Murdoch Empire, this Gallipoli story. Um, for your American listeners who might not be that across it, um, there's a Mel, Mel Gibson film about it um, uh, in the 80s, but basically uh, the British um, decided to try and open up another front in the First World War uh, and uh, sort of distract the Ottoman Empire essentially. So they sent a lot of troops, a lot of them Australian and New Zealand troops, to try and take over this peninsula, um, which is called Gallipoli, uh, but it was a, a pretty much a disaster from the get-go. The terrain was just impossible for these troops to to take over, so it was basically a slaughter. Um, and Keith, in one of his first kind of big breaks, he had managed to convince, having had a letter of introduction from another prime minister, convinced one of the British generals to let him kind of get close to report on this other issue. And while he was there, he was convinced to write essentially an expose on what was happening, and he did that. It was this letter that's supposed to be a private letter to the Prime Minister and told in very um, colourful language um, just the toll that was being inflicted and the, in the in, almost it was cartoonish in some ways, the, this caricature of the, the apathetic British command who are, you know, off drinking martinis on boats while they're, while they're you know, forcing men, Australians to jump over out of the trenches at gunpoint. A lot of the, the, the detail of that letter was later debunked but it certainly had a great impact and was seized upon by people back in the UK who were looking for any ammunition to change the direction of the war and uh, change the command. And one of them was Lord Northcliffe, who was this notorious press baron who was the founder of the Daily Mail, proprietor of the Times. And so this was an opportunity for Keith. So even though it's this, you know, in Australia, he's kind of lionised and that's fed by Rupert's papers as well as this great sort of whistleblower and truth teller, you can also see that he it was his second chance and he wasn't going to waste any opportunity. And going through his letters, his letters with Lord Northcliffe, which were a really big source in that early chapter, shows how Lord Northcliffe informed Sir Keith. Lord Northcliffe is this, he was also a kind of 
notorious at times sort of scurrilous populist press baron you can see how he informed what keith would later um bring when he came back to adelaide to make his start as an editor and build up this chain uh and then that is the lineage that flows through to to rupert when when he um finally comes of age so in the letters with lord northcliffe i i saw keith say you know to lord northcliffe your letters are your notes are my bible and then you know decades later i'm reading letters between rupert and one of his um close friends and and his close friends in the letter to keith says that rupert you know treasures your letters they're like his bible so you can see that lineage all the way through and, and it just put Rupert in in a context. Yeah, he didn't, you know, he, he didn't fall out of the sky. He's So, Walter, you explore the complicated relationship between Rupert and his father, Sir Keith Murdoch. And obviously, Sir Keith was this war reporter, well-respected, built this empire of newspapers across Australia. And Rupert's off at Geelong, Geelong Grammar and then he's in Oxford. His father gets sick. And it passes away at, uh, when Rupert's 22 years old. Tell us what happens next. He has to come home and he starts the empire. Uh, what, tell us what that relationship was like. Yeah, so right up until his last, you know, hours and days of life, Keith was, you know, expending all this energy, all this time, all this money, trying to build this inheritance for Rupert. But even right until the end, he wasn't entirely convinced that Rupert was necessarily going to live up to that challenge, to that opportunity. Um, but then he dies, you know, very abruptly uh, and Rupert is thrust into this enormous kind of battle. Uh, if things had gone a bit differently, you know, who knows how things would have happened if, if his father, who was a very dominating figure as his colleagues at the Herald knew very well, if he'd stuck around and, and Rupert had kind of had to do an extended apprenticeship under his father's watch, you know, he might not have stuck it out. So the circumstances of that very abrupt death while that, that project of building Rupert's inheritance was still pretty almost half finished, um, which led Rupert to have to move from Oxford um, to Adelaide, this relatively small town, probably not where he thought he'd be starting out, um, and has to kind of fight for every opportunity. Um, and that's the kind of uh, there's obviously a sort of personal um, uh, a personal aspect to that where he's kind of got this big chip on his shoulder coming up against his father's old friends, this um, sense of yeah, a, a siege mentality, I guess, and betrayal almost. But then it also, because he is coming up against this much bigger, better-resourced empire um, that his father had built up, he has to very quickly adapt to survive and start expanding himself, which puts him on this kind of never-ending treadmill of expansion and debt and finding whatever opportunities he can get, um, which lasts in 70 years. 70 years and uh, encompass the launch of satellite television, the acquisition of MySpace, the launch of Fox News, uh, the launch of uh, so many different acquisitions over the years and billions of dollars of debt that nearly broke the company in the 90s. Um, wh where do you think that Rupert got that zeal from? Do you think he's trying to still impress dad? Or do you think that he just learned lessons that he just kept applying over and over again? I mean, we should mention that even Rupert makes uh, references to his maternal grandfather, Rupert Green, who is a big gambler. He enjoys risk-taking. Um, tell us about what you learned about Rupert's risk-taking nature. Well, there was one fast, really interesting quote that I saw that I found when from another a, a British um, newspaper owner who'd 
uh, crossed paths with Rupert when he accompanied his father on uh, like a newspaper proprietor's convention. I think it was in Canada, and this would have been a couple of years before his father died. And because this guy was um, the other, the only other youngish man at this gathering of, of old press dinosaurs, they kind of you know hit it off. And he later remarked that he could see that Rupert was really attracted to the game of it, sort of the cut and thrust all these big personalities, these high stakes, these big acquisitions, this, you know, lots of money on the table at times. And I think, you know, the case, there's a case that can be made from reading this book that, you know, once he's thrown into this, um, that game of his own sort of game in Adelaide and then onwards that he, you know, once he's on, on the run, as he describes it in one quote that I use in the book, it's a hard, um, it's hard to know when to stop. So let's talk about politics because, the early years of Rupert Murdoch's life, we know from all of those other books that he had a bust of Lenin in his room at Oxford University and was quite progressive. But your book really goes into depth about where that comes from, uh, the progressive uh, history of uh, Roland Rivette, I think his name is. Um, Rowan, and t- tell us why, tell us about that period of his life and what informed those views and how they changed so radically. I mean, we know Rupert Murdoch in England and the States as somebody who is a supporter of mostly very right wing causes. Well, it's a, you know, it's, it's, it's a cliche, you know, that you people, a lot of people start off left wing and then end up um, moving further right as they get older. But I think you can't, it's hard to find a more severe example of that than than Rupert Murdoch and yeah there's all as you said there's always been you know references to the the bust of Lenin as this kind of um symbol I guess of this early left-wing um young man but it was interesting yet yeah, going back through some of the primary sources and seeing you know even things from like the records of the debating society at his high school where he always came down on the side of like the most progressive and left-wing arguments available he was you know um vocally standing up for the value of unions and things like that said that you know the the death of unionism would mean the death of the british way of life at one point he's referred to as comrade murdoch (laughs) all this stuff uh and you know some of his schoolmates weren't sure if he was actually that sincere he was just kind of stirring he was stirring the pot or this kind of youthful rebellion against a, a father who was quite um known for being a conservative press baron at the time um but it was interesting to see how that came into play once he once he actually started working as a newspaper proprietor and that's where the the figure of Rowan Rivet becomes really important because he was very progressive this kind of crusading journalist he's actually the grandson though of Alfred Deakin who was the prime minister who gave Keith Murdoch that letter of recommendation on his first trip to Fleet Street so it's all you know you know generations of networks um but Rivet was this uh, really interesting guy he was a sort of a P- former POW a best-selling author and very progressive and had met Rupert when Rupert was still at high school. When Rupert went to Oxford, Rivette was there as well uh, as a cable correspondent working for Rupert's dad. Um, And you can see in these letters, which are a really sort of foundational source for me for this book, uh, he's really egging Rupert on um, in lots of respects, but particularly on his sort of in the progressive political space, telling him to get involved in the Labour Club and things like that. And then when Keith uh, is putting together this inheritance for Rupert, one of those, you know, big building blocks is this Adelaide company, News Limited, with its afternoon paper, The News. Uh, and he hires Rivette to come over and basically shake up this paper, which was kind of stagnating. Uh, and he does, he leaves Rupert in England and comes back. 
And he, yeah, really sets to work trying to remake this paper as a sort of progressive crusading paper uh, in, a, in a city where, you know, just for context, it Adelaide in the 1950s. What Adelaide is like? What's it, what does it look like? Is it small, a small town? It's very conservative. What's it like? Well, it, it's a bit like that now, but um, certainly in the 1950s, it was. It had been in the 1950s. Uh, Adelaide had been run by the Liberal Party, the Liberal Country Party, which is the Conservative Party, and they'd been in power for 20 years. And they were kept in power by a gerrymander, uh, in which country voters who voted Liberal uh, and Country League uh, were given twice the weight of city voters. So they were losing the popular vote, essentially, uh, to use an American, well-known American term of turn of phrase, uh, they were losing the popular vote but were still getting returned to government. Uh, and so Rupert, Rowan, Rivet, and then later Rupert, you know, they could see that there was this big um, potential readership because the advertiser, which was the morning paper, the sort of establishment paper, the paper of record, was fully in step with that government and that um, institution which had been in, in place. Um, and Keith Murdoch had, by the way, sort of set up this um, this sort of playing field when he came into town 30 years earlier. Um, but, yeah, so you can see where there was a very uh, pragmatic um, and economic drive to building up this progressive paper, which was, to me, reading this uh, in 2020, 2021, it didn't seem that uh, far removed from, say, Rupert's model when he you know, started Fox News in the 90s and saw that in the cable news market, there was, uh, you know, it was more kind of centrist, maybe centre-left, and he thought, you know, there's a lot of Republicans and right-wing um, viewers who aren't being spoken to, and if we build a paper that speaks to them, um, that's an audience that's waiting. And that's being so audience-driven is something that has been being able to identify and speak to those audiences has been something that he's pursued in every market across his career. It just so happens in Fox News' case that that aligned with his politics at that point. And in the 1950s, it aligned with his politics, um, which were quite left at the start. But it's the fact, it's the changing arc of his relationship with, with Rowan Rivette that is kind of the, the kind of through line of the book, really, because it's obviously a spoiler, but Rivette, you know, Rivette is not a household name. He obviously doesn't stay by Rupert's side up until, you know, while well, he takes over the world. They come, they part ways in 1960, uh, and it's the showing the distance, I guess, between Rupert and Rivette when they were both so close, sort of working cheek to jowl and shaking up the system. That shows how Rupert has come so far. Yeah, and that, that's kind of like another through line of Rupert's life. When you stop being useful or Rupert changes his mind about you, uh, your history, and <laughs> you're out, right? Uh, and we see that time and time again through through his life. Um, tell me, what are the lessons that Rupert learned on Fleet Street that he brought to the Adelaide papers? You write about the first time a dead body is seen on the front cover and it increases circulation but also outrage. It didn't take a lot to kind of revolutionise the way that news was presented and and told in, in Adelaide because it had been a pretty stagnant market for a long time. So right from the the first year that Rowan Rivette lands, uh, which is when that, that – um, photograph of, of the dead body is is put on the front page and you know outrages a lot of readers uh but from from that very early period they're very consciously working to go around the world see what is working in different markets what new modernizing developments are being introduced and import them straight back into adelaide and that uh, one of the first kind of big battles of rupert's life is this 
circulation battle with the advertiser, which uh, so the News Limited, its main paper is the afternoon news, but its real cash cow is the the Sunday paper. It's the only Sunday paper in town. Uh, and when Rupert is you know still kind of coming to terms with his father's death, the uh, the chairman of the advertiser sort of makes this overture to um, his mother Elizabeth and basically says, look, she should sell sell the mail, sell the news, News Limited back to us. Um, and if you don't, we're going to introduce a Sunday advertiser, which will basically run you out of town, squeeze the Murdochs out of the news business entirely, which, you know, imagine if they succeeded, the world would be probably a very different place. Um, but in this uh, battle that ensues, you know, Rupert very quickly decides, no, we're going to go to war, this kind of this sort of Sunday weekend war um, with this much bigger, better resourced rival. Uh, and they throw everything they can, both papers. They modernise in every way imaginable. And do all these, you know, round the world reconnaissance trips to find all the new, all the new kinds of articles, new kinds of content, uh, and it's this sort of arms race, I guess, in in nineteen fifties newspaper terms, which radically shakes up how newspapers are put together and presented, uh, and yeah, sets the groundwork for for everything that comes afterwards. Yeah, that's so intriguing. Um, so I, I guess you know the fact that they were international and they'd lived in different places and seen different ways of doing them was to their to Rupert's advantage um tell me a little bit more about the process of reporting out the book did you find Rupert's schoolmates did you find people who worked with him when he was a reporter and an editor and how hard was it to get people to talk to you yeah so uh, foundationally it was really uh, more of an archival process so I was really lucky to find very early on this the papers of Rowan Rivet, um, which is why he's such an important character really because uh, he, he held on to every letter essentially between him and Rupert, him and Keith, even when Rupert scrawled, you know, burned this in the margins of a particularly um, saucy letter. Uh, he, you know, he kept that and I saw the, the bit of pen that says burn. Um, so that was really a, a foundation. Um, but then from there I sort of filled in the gaps uh, with other archives uh, these other men, uh, like Lloyd Dumas, who was the head of the advertiser, he also donated his papers. And there are also a lot of unpublished autobiographies, which have just kind of become available um, in the, since the 1970s, which is when a lot of the first books about Murdoch were published in the 1970s. So, And they were the ones that focused most heavily uh, on this early Adelaide period. A lot of the later ones sort of condense it and condense it and condense it. But the more I just kept finding really interesting material, archival material, some of which was only being unsealed you know, in the last 10 years, which spoke directly to that period and allowed me to really open it up um, in a really vivid way, you know, when you can piece together these conversations that they're having, you know, by mail over continents, um, but it's, it's this very intimate form of communication. But then I also, yeah, supplemented that with, you know, one of the things when you're doing a book about a 92-year-old is that, and he was the young, he was often the youngest person in the room in a lot of these events as they're unfolding. So in many ways, he's the last living witness to a lot of it. So I did, I, mean, I found, I spoke in person to, I think, one one of his schoolmates from Geelong, uh, who was very helpful. Um, and then I, I managed to track down this one lady who went to Oxford alongside him. Um, but it was a very crackly phone line from London uh, in the middle of the night. But I was very lucky as well to be able to draw upon a lot of interviews that were done uh, in the 80s, the 90s, the 70s as well by other other journalists, uh, particularly this one lady, um, uh, Dimity Torbett, who she was a journalist at The Australian um, in the 70s and then quit and became a, an activist, in, in uh, still a journalist. Uh, but in the 80s, she was thinking about writing a book 
about Rupert. Uh, and then I think she did so much research, but I think a few other books kind of beat her to the punch. Um, but she's been, she kept gathering material um, and kind of late in the process, really, um, I managed to get onto via the wife, the widow of one of the, another one of the journalists that I mentioned a lot in the book. She turned me onto this lady, Dimity, and she has this apartment in Sydney in Australia, which was just full of boxes and boxes and boxes and boxes of material. And so I spent this in, extraordinary afternoon sitting across from her. She, she's, she's not in great health these days, so she's just sort of sitting down at the couch pouring over page after page when she thought something was interesting to me, like some interview that she interviewed all these people that, you know, were family, friends, schoolmates, many of whom have passed away or, you know, their memory isn't as good. Uh, and she would just hand me page and I would quickly take a photo of it and then hand it back to her to try and make sure their pages didn't get out of order. Cause thankfully I think a library in Australia is taking a lot of these sources and, and keeping them for posterity. But yeah, that was another really rich source. And, yeah, just kind of seeking out whatever I could find. So it's a bit of a uh, yeah patchwork in the end. But, I, but it's, it's one of those stories that wherever wherever I kept pulling the thread, whether it was in an archive or in letters or in you know unpublished um, material, even Rowan Rivette wrote a novel, an unpublished novel, which very thinly fictionalizes all of these events that happen in the book to the extent that. Uh, you know, I could compare a court transcript to how it's written in the book and it's pretty much verbatim, which then leads to all these all these other scenes which I can't corroborate between the editor character and the sort of Rupert character, which are just so tantalising because is that is, is that exactly how it happened? I'll never know. Only Rupert can corroborate. But, um, yeah, it was all, a, a really rich a range of sources. But then also because um, half of the book, or a big chunk of the book is um, focused on this, um, this trial and a royal commission, and then the seditious libel trial that News Limited um, faces. Tell us about that, Walter. That's a really interesting point that you raise. Rupert was involved in a seditious libel trial at the very beginning of his life. He's still involved in legal issues. Most recently, the biggest defamation case in, uh, involving a media company with um, the uh, the voting booth company, D- Dominion. Uh, but right at the very beginning of his career, he is involved in this seditious libel trial. T- tell us about what happened there. It forms a big chunk of the book, and it's kind of the, it's the climax of this seven-year period of Rupert in Adelaide, where he and Rowan have been pushing the envelope and challenging the government and the establishment in Adelaide, and they've been getting themselves into trouble along the way. But it culminates in this um, huge outroar, outcry um, after. There's um, basically the news gets involved in this very contentious court case where um, an Aranda man, so an Aboriginal man uh, who's 26 years old, he's arrested and sentenced to death for the murder of a nine-year-old white girl in this small coastal town. He's convicted on this confession, uh, which is signed by him, but it's typed by the police. Uh, And at trial, it's basically that's the only bit of evidence that really is um, worthwhile. Uh, And the judge... Uh, pretty much says so, and the jury convicts him despite his attempts to claim that the police beat it out of him. Um, and that uh, goes in, goes through a number of appeals. None of them really go anywhere until a Catholic priest who does speak um, Stuart's first language, Aranda, um, talks to him in jail and comes to realise that Stuart just doesn't have the sort of English language vocabulary um, to dictate that confession in the very precise way that it was worded that um, implicated him in this crime. And so 
this priest sort of takes up the cause of, of Stuart and he eventually meets Rowan Rivette, this editor of um, Rupert's Papers. He agrees to, the paper agrees to fund the priest as he sort of goes on this cross-country trip to track down an alibi for Stuart. And when they succeed, the news sends along one of their reporters to accompany him. When they succeed in getting the alibi, that leads the the government of the day, pressures them to uh, launch a royal commission to uh, sort of open up the case essentially. And by this point, the case is drawing kind of international attention. And in the sort of peak of the royal commission, uh, Stuart's lawyer is cross-examining one of the police that were involved in the initial um, arrest, uh, and he stopped mid kind of cross-examination by one of the royal commissioners who happens to be also the chief justice of South Australia because it was such a weird incestuous place that the government thought that was a good idea to put the chief justice at the head of this royal commission, even though he'd sat on one of the appeals previously. So Stuart's lawyer walks out in frustration and the news covers this in very dramatic terms in their headlines and in their sort of news posters as well. So they said that these commissioners cannot do the job. Uh, and you won't give Stuart a fair go, which is a pretty big um, thing to charge to level at someone in Australia. Everyone loves is obsessed with the fa- the idea of the fair go here. Um, and so basically the, the the Royal Commission finishes, the, the verdict is upheld, but Stuart's death sentence is commuted to life, so his supporters saved him from execution. Um, but then a few months later in January 1960, this is the scene that starts the book, um, these police officers come to the News Limited uh, headquarters to interview, to interrogate Rowan Rivette and then later Rupert, uh, which leads to a few weeks later this um, week and a half long trial in which Rupert and the editor and all of their journalists kind of hauled before court. And I was reading, so a lot of that is informed by the, the raw transcripts of that court case. Um, so I could see where the government lawyers were kind of forensically tearing apart how this early form of Rupert's newspapers, how, how the stories were put together, how the relationships worked, the power structures, uh, all kind of poured over in an open courtroom. And then at the sort of the peak of that trial, it's revealed that even though Rupert, who hadn't been that prominent a figure in the Stuart case up until that point, when Rivette takes the stand finally after, you know, a week of being portrayed as this sort of unhinged man determined to take down the government or discredit the government, uh, he reveals that actually it was Rupert himself that drafted some of the most um, uh, colourful headlines that had so outraged the government and led to his paper and and Rowan, the editor, being charged with seditious libel. Um, so there was, yeah, so even at this, um, yeah, this moment of really high pressure, but also, uh, well, eventually all the charges, all the charges got, got dropped at the end, <laughs> which was, quite, so it was a close call. Well, uh, well, it's, it's, it was fascinating to see it unfold in in the transcript because Rupert, uh, at a previous hearing when he's trying to get a television license a few days earlier, he's he's got a, he comes in very almost arrogant, really, uh, to try and assert his uh, try and argue for being argue his case for being given the only television license in Adelaide, uh, and he kind of gets backed into a corner by his rivals' lawyers. They verbal him. It's very embarrassing. It's almost like a cousin Greg moment if you're a fan of succession um and he just contradicts himself it's just really embarrassing but it's the complete opposite case in this sedition trial where rupert and his lawyers and his journalists sorry they just completely stonewall uh it almost becomes sort of farcical where they just refuse to give the prosecution anything to the extent that 
two of Rupert's journalists uh, sent into custody briefly by the judge for refusing to cooperate. And at one point, the uh, the South Australian government, the executive council, they give a, a complete pardon to one of the other journalists so that he can't plead fear of self-incrimination uh, as a reason to not testify. So the government throw everything they can at just to draw some kind of material out of out of these journalists who have, you know, Rupert's legal strategy has been to close ranks. So it's just so fascinating to see in the context of, of you know, the Dominion trial and, and things like that where this was an example where, you know, clearly it seemed like even, even Rupert knew, could recognise when maybe he'd flown a little bit too close to the sun. Where does the book wrap up? Is it the beginning of television? Where do you decide to end the book? So my end point, the, the main sort of end point really is the the moment when Rupert sacks Rowan Rivette. Um, so by that point, he's kind of, he's the trial has just finished. He's left Adelaide. He's decided to move on to Sydney. He's starting these kind of kind of very violent, literally violent battles uh, in the Sydney newspaper world. And it already has his eye on, on the world beyond Adelaide. Um, but he kind of out of the blue sacks Rowan Rivette by letter Um which after you know a decade plus friendship was pretty shocking to a lot of people, but just just demonstrated that you know their their part their their paths in life had forked, and also you know Rupert was no longer the son of Keith Murdoch, the press baron who needed his friend Rowan Rivette to kind of look after him and um, set set the scene for him. He was his own man; he didn't need the man his father had had put in his place. That's the kind of end point. Um, but then I also because I, I, I wanted to loop it back to the sort of Adelaide theme, uh, the last chapter is this very, very um, brisk survey of, of the decades that follow. When Then in the 80s when he's sort of taken on Britain and then the US, he comes back to Australia in the 80s and manages to finally you know, win the great battle of taking over his father's old empire, the Herald and Weekly Times, um, and which he you know, had never managed to inherit. So he takes that all that over, but sort of the sacrificial, the sacrifice, I guess, is that he has to sell off the Adelaide News, the paper that he started with, in order to meet sort of ownership laws, uh, and that limps on and then and then dies in March 1992, leading leaving the Advertiser, which Rupert now owns, was once once his big nemesis. Uh, it's now the only paper in Adelaide. So that's the kind of the, the full circle moment. So the original paper is no longer. Yeah, no, it closed. It closed just after my first birthday. So. Oh, that's sad. And so, having written this book, Walter, what do you? How did it change your perception of Rupert Murdoch? Did you go in feeling one way and come out feeling another? I mean, in, in some ways, because the story is him sort of sticking it to these conservative establishments, which, in a lot of ways, were you know, well overdue for someone to, to rock the boat and, and give them a, a good shellacking. It's hard, and also in terms of, you know, the rivals that he's coming up against in the newspaper business, it's hard not to kind of, you know, root for the guy at some points, even though when he's this arrogant, privileged kind of brat, he's still, you know, fighting this fight, which I thought was really interesting. Obviously, he's the impact he's had on the world and the man he is today and has been for a long time is, you know, in many ways the polar opposite. He'd be, from a storytelling perspective, it was so fascinating that, you know, you see him making all these arguments, but, you know, there's this dramatic irony when you know he will inevitably become the very thing he's arguing against. Um, but it was interesting for me in terms of understanding the dynamics of, of Murdoch and maybe the, the story that he tells himself 
because even you know as you would know in the american context he's always um when in britain and then the us and then even today he's always shaking up and challenging these elite establishments and even today when he's so powerful so rich so influential you know the the murdoch press still rabbit on about elites you know who are these elites if not if not you guys but you can see the strands the, the strands of that argument the dna runs back to this kind of crucible of these early years in adelaide which um is kind of the foundation that sort of sets him off walter we have to talk about succession before i let you go uh, Walter's book is called Young Rupert. It is a fascinating read. It has a big red cover, a picture of Young Rupert on the cover. Um, it's out in the US officially in the fall, Walter? Uh, January. I managed to get it on my Kindle, though. So if you want to read it right now, there's a way to do it. Um, but Walter, um, you know, just, just to wrap up, um, tell us a little bit, about succession when you watch that show do you feel like logan roy is rupert murdoch did they get it right uh well i mean you know when i was starting this book i i definitely had i'd read all these sources these letters from that early period you know 10 years ago and as i was thinking about how to approach this book uh, it was around the same time when i started you know watching the first season of succession so you know that definitely seeing the correlation or the reflection of the raw material I was seeing from, from the historical archives and the way that this story was being told where, you know, the sort of personal stakes and the, the push and pull and these power struggles that were happening on a personal level, but also, you know, intersecting with, you know, this grand canvas of like, you know, politics and the world and, you know, that, that has this huge ramification. What happens in these small rooms has huge ramifications for everyone living outside. It was definitely um, uh, good to know that there was an appetite for those kinds of stories as I was pushing on. Um, but I think it, it's kind of it, it, it's interesting, this story, in that it, it, it's kind of an inversion where Rupert is, he's the kind of, someone told me he's kind of like the Kendall of this story and Keith, um, is the Logan Roy really? Um, but you know, luckily he ends up with, for him at least, he ends up with, with the paper. Um, but it, it, the, there are a lot of parallels. Even you know, the book was in the can when that last season of Succession came out, and the whole uh, there's like a, the, the chapter that follows Keith's death, which is also quite abrupt, and also ends in this kind of feeding frenzy where everyone's trying to figure out what what Keith's actual final wishes were because he told different people different things depending what he wanted out of them. So everyone was, you know, invoking Sir Keith's name to try and get the upper hand. So, yeah, there was a lot of, um, uh, yeah, it, it correlated a lot with what I was seeing even though it was set 70 years earlier. And just one last question. Did you learn much about Elizabeth, his mom? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, she's always this kind of interesting figure because people, even people that hate Rupert in Australia, always speak very kindly of, of his mother as this, you know, she's this philanthropist has occupied this almost sort of a bit like the queen kind of image in Australian popular culture. Probably the fact her has her um, son owns all the newspapers probably helps that image. Um, but then it was interesting seeing uh, how she's portrayed in, in biographies, but also, you know, she's got a couple of biographies of her own, which are drawn from interviews and seeing how, this you know kindly old woman as she's often portrayed in, certainly in comparison to this image of Keith as this harder newspaper man but you know she was the one who was throwing Rupert into the pool to learn how to swim uh, I think loving discipline is how she described her parenting style um, 
yeah, I think she definitely had the idea that this boy needed to be toughened up a little as well from the, from a very young age. Excellent. I have Walter Marsh, who is the author of Young Rupert. It is a cracking read, as they'd say in Australia. I learned a lot. I felt like I was actually there in those rooms, which is a credit to your writing, Walter. Um, congratulations on your first book. I hope it's a rip-roaring bestseller. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Claire. That's it for the Media Mix. Tune in next week for our next episode. To stay in the mix, subscribe to this podcast and the newsletter, The Media Mix. Reach out on social or over email at themediamixus at gmail.com and let us know your thoughts on the podcast. We'd love you to subscribe, to rate, review us. Thanks as ever to Jamie Maglietta, who is the exec producer, Ray Hernandez, and all at Situation Room Studios, who are our production partners. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.